Amen. Sweet truths. We sing to a big God, don't we? Before we were ever dead in our sins, He chose us. It's a staggering reality. And that same God seated on His throne today and tonight in the midst of our world, it feels like it's coming unhinged at times, doesn't it? But He is sovereign, and we are thankful. Well, thanks, man, for uh, leading us in song, and uh, it is a joy to be back together tonight in our study in Philippians. Uh, all things are, are coming to an end here uh, over the next few weeks, your semester, our time on Thursdays, our study of Philippians. Um, bittersweet, of course, but tonight we will be back in chapter 4, and we're going to be finishing up Paul's final set of instructions um, in this letter, you can think of it as his sort of final commands. His sort of last set of exhortations that he wants ringing in the ears of the Philippians. And if he were here today, he would want ringing in our ears. So if you're not already there, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. And if you were with us last time, uh, you'll remember that this passage is all about God's peace. Right? It's all about his peace. It's all about how to experience God's peace, the peace that passes understanding. And as Paul brings this letter to a close, he wants the members of this Philippian church to experience in real time, and here and now, God's very peace. He wants their souls to experience the rest that Christ promised to his people. He wants them and He wants us today to live out in our experience the rest that Christ promised. To live our day-to-day -day existence, to live out the peace that Christ achieved for us by His cross. And see, the reality is that we, right now, have peace with God. We have it. It's been secured. The war is over. The war is done. We have God's peace. We are no longer His enemy, like the song says. No longer enemies, but friends. Our mutiny, our rebellion, our treason, it's been forgiven in full. It's been punished in Christ. And now He has made peace for us by the blood of His cross. And it's that peace that we get the chance to experience in our hearts, in our minds, right now, that sweet tranquility of soul, the serenity of the inner person that doesn't depend on circumstances and that defies human logic. It escapes human explanation, or as Paul says, it surpasses all understanding. But sometimes, if we're honest, okay, all this talk about peace, uh, and yet it seems so hard to come by, doesn't it? Uh, maybe it's just my experience, but uh, it, it does seem sort of elusive at times. How can we experience peace when everything around us is so unstable, so scary? And instead of being at rest, our hearts are often frantic. They're afraid. They're in a state of panic, right? Especially during exams. We feel those pressures of life way too acutely. 
And if we're not afraid, then lots of times we're on the opposite side of that spectrum. We're irritable. We're on edge. You know, we're angry, snappy. So instead of this inner tranquility, we feel sort of tightly strung or easily annoyed or ready to lash out when things don't go just kind of the way we want, maybe, maybe the way we expected. And when it comes to a remedy, when it comes to the solution for experiencing God's peace, we're tempted to think, okay, we're tempted to think that our circumstances need to change. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's our sort of, our solution that we're often tempted to go to. We think things like, once this exam is behind me, I won't feel as panicked. If I could just find someone to date, then I won't be as anxious about that anymore. If that toxic person wasn't in my life, I wouldn't be as irritated all the time. If I made more money, I wouldn't feel as tightly wound. If my mom didn't have cancer, then I wouldn't feel this constant terror that I might lose her. Now, I'm not saying circumstances don't play a significant factor in our lives. They do. They totally are significant, and Paul would say that we we have to work through those circumstances. We're not machines. But we have to realize that underneath these kinds of thoughts, what we're ultimately saying is that the path to peace means my circumstances must change. You see that? The path to peace, if I'm going to get there, then I have to have a change in my circumstances. Once that's done, once, if I get this, then I'll have peace. And then I can't have peace unless those things change. And that seems like it's in accordance with our experience, right? Like the exam is over, and what do you feel? Feel some relief, right? So you're thinking, okay seems to be a reality, and then you enters the Apostle Paul. Right? Here's a man in a terrible condition, what we might even call a toxic condition, to borrow the culture's language. He's suffering unjustly for the gospel's sake in a Roman prison, and yet he is experiencing God's peace. He's sitting chained to a guard, Completely restricted, but with tranquility of soul. He's living out the rest that Christ promised to his weary disciples. But how's he doing that? Okay, well, Paul's clearly not some superhuman. Paul's not, like, untouched by life's sorrows. He's not immune to sufferings and difficulties. He told us earlier in the letter that he would have had heaping sorrow, he would have broken his heart if Epaphroditus would have died under his watch. Remember that? Sorrow upon sorrow, he says. And we know he had chronic pain from the repetitive beatings that he endured. He details that out in 2 Corinthians 11. We know his eyesight was poor, He suffered from sleep deprivation. He calls it many sleepless nights in 2 Corinthians 11. He felt despair and hopelessness at times. 2 Corinthians 1, he says he despaired of life itself. 
He felt the daily crushing pressure of being responsible from a human standpoint for so many churches he had planted. Clearly, Paul is like us. He is frail. He is weak. He is prone to the same daily fears and frustrations and stressors. So what is different? How does he experience surpassing peace? Well, Paul knows the path out. Like the real path. The path that doesn't involve just rearranging of of earthly circumstances. He knows the path back to this inexplicable peace, this God's peace. And he lays out this path like we, we began last week. We saw him laying this out with crystal clarity in Philippians 4, 4 through 9 here at the end of this letter. And much to our surprise, he does not say that we have to change our circumstances. Or he doesn't say we have to avoid our stressors or even rid ourselves of toxic people. In fact, what he says implies that we can have God's surpassing peace right in the middle of some of life's most pressing challenges. During exam week, in other words. It won't be easy, and it's not automatic, but it's possible. We don't just sit back and hope God zaps us with peace. God expects us to pursue it in some tangible and practical steps. And we looked at the first four of those last week. Okay, so just kind of get back on that. Um, if you missed it, we're not going to go into details here, but you can go back and check that out. It's really the part one. In these first couple verses, Paul tells us that we've got to learn to rejoice in Christ alone. And that we can rejoice in Him always in every circumstance. As we choose to renew our minds and rejoice, despite what we might naturally feel, we're going to find God's surpassing peace, he says. And then he directs us to be gentle, right? To be gentle, to cultivate this gentleness, display it to others. He directs us to be gentle and to make sure that we're displaying that gentleness to everyone, including unbelievers who might provoke us. And again, this forces us to renew our minds. This forces us, as we're going to see tonight, to get our thinking in line, to remember the Lord is with us, that He cares for us, that He will help us. And that, Paul says, is going to bring inner peace, stability. Then third, Paul says that we can't give in to sinful fear. We have to refuse. We have to refuse it every time. Don't be anxious for anything, he says. We can't excuse our fear or relabel it. We have to declare war on it, and we have to declare war on its every manifestation. Instead of being anxious, Paul says, he tells us we've got to learn to really pray, to to truly roll our anxieties onto the Lord, and to do it with gratitude. Remembering that He's in control and that He's going to care for us. We've got to learn to depend on the Lord moment by moment, as those fears arise, or as I say, commune with your present Lord. And if we do these things, these, these first initial pursuits, Paul says that the God's, that God's peace will guard us. It will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that was all sort of prelude to tonight. As practical as all that was last week, Paul is not finished 
on this theme of experiencing God's peace. Of course, he's going to say tonight, the God of peace. In fact, these, these final verses here, verses 8 and 9, you could say that, that Paul takes a step back and really summarizes everything with two final commands. Like they're overarching sort of summary pursuits that encompass all the rest of those pursuits, really of the entire letter. And it's sweet simplicity, okay? Because I know you've kind of like, you're grabbing all these commands, and you're like, oh, God, I remember all this stuff, you know? What do I do? You know, it's got, yeah, that's how I feel sometimes. Like, oh, all these commands everywhere. But at the end, Paul's saying, finally, in summation, in summary here, I'll leave you with two things. Two pursuits, and it has to do, two final pursuits, and it has to, it has to do with experiencing the God of peace. And these final pursuits had to do with how we think and how we live. Okay? How we think and how we live. Or to use Paul's terms in Ephesians 4, has to do with mind renewal and with putting on the new man. Okay? Or in our text tonight, our thinking and our practice. So look with me in um, verse 8 here. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's first pursuit. And second, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what's the promise? The God of peace will be with you. So again, just building off of last week, you remember that, you know, Paul's grammar kind of changes here. He doesn't, doesn't do a lot of this in the letter, but he, he fronts all these clauses kind of at the beginning. You know, whatever, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, you know, these things, he says, think about. And then he comes again in the second, whatever you've learned and received and heard, these things you should practice. So there's a, there's a parallel here in both these, both these verses. Shows us that they go together. And they're really two, two of these final pursuits that, that lead to uh, experiencing God's peace. And let's just take them one by one here and, and work these out. First one is meditating on what is true and good. As I say here, meditating on the true and the good. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Dwell on them. Meditate on them. So, this means then, if we're going to consistently experience peace, really in summation, which you can boil it down to, like the, the starting process here, is it starts with fixating not on how we feel, but on something more fundamental we're fixating on how we think. It's not that our emotions are unimportant. They're very important. But Paul knows there's something even more important, more foundational, and that is the life of our minds. The life of our minds. Paul knows that our minds are never, ever neutral. 
Okay? We often think that they are, but they're not. We're always thinking. We're always meditating. We're always making assessments about things. We're always interpreting events and circumstances from a grid system. And then we're responding to those interpretations. Our minds are always active. They're always engaged, whether we notice it or not. And how we think is what drives us as humans. It's the engine that churns up our powerful desires and it leads to action. Okay? It's very important. We understand that. Our thinking is what drives what we want. Our assessments, the way we see things, drive what we want, our powerful desires, and that leads to action. And so Paul says we've got to start here in our thinking, if we're going to fight fear and irritation, and ultimately if we're going to experience God's peace. In other words, we don't just pray for it. It's important as prayer is. There's an activity that has to that come to bear, and that's this active meditation. And notice that Paul doesn't, doesn't just tell us to think, right? He's not just, he's not just commanding us to think, like, hey, just start, just start thinking, you know? Um, we all do that. But he tells us how to think, right? Or, or what to think about. Or what to let our minds dwell deeply upon. And what he gives us is really a flurry of virtues. You know, it's just kind of like, he just kind of hits us in rapid fire with seven or eight kind of virtue statements. And you can think of this list in kind of two ways. All right? And they go together. You can think of this list like a, first like a filter. Okay? It filters out, you know, it filters your existing thoughts, the ones that are already kind of bumping around in your mind all the time. Okay, so this list, you can apply it like a filter. It'll help you take your thoughts captive, evaluate them, and either keep them or throw them out. And then second, you can think of it as not just a filter for your existing thoughts, but like a template for what your thoughts should be. Okay, something to aspire to in your thinking. If you're not thinking about these things already, they're like targets to aim at. So you can think filter, target, right? And I love where Paul starts. He doesn't just say we should think positive thoughts, as popular as that sounds today, okay? Positive according to who? That's the question, right? He says we should think about whatever is what? True. What's he talking about? Well, for Paul, it's God and his word. God is true. His word is true. His words are our only fixed anchor for what is true. Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And so, why is it so crucial for us to start here when it comes to our thinking? Okay? comes to what we're going to meditate on, dwell on, and dwell on what is true. Well, it's, it's fundamental that we start here because when we were dead in sins, all we were is deceived. Like, that's, that's all our old nature had to offer us, was deception. 
And now, even though we are still in Christ, we've been saved, cleansed, we've given a new nature like we heard in Romans 6 last week, Pastor Brian, that old nature, that old man, it's not who we are, it's not our identity anymore, but he's still lingering around. Our old selves are completely deceived. They're still hanging around in the corner, lurking around, you know, cigarette in his mouth kind of thing, trying to influence us and influence our thinking. And Paul says we have to learn to put off the old man, the old woman, the old self in its entirety. Meaning, there's nothing good about it, you just have to put it off. And just put your finger right here in Philippians and then flip over um, to, to Ephesians. Ephesians 4. We spent a long time here in the growth series, so I just want to review this and bring this back up to you because this is so important. I talk about this on a weekly basis with people in my office because it's so important to understand. Paul spends Ephesians 1 through 3 and really some of chapter 4 talking about what we've gained in Christ because of what he's done. Like, we didn't get ourselves into the family in any sense. Even our good works that we're doing right now were prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So Paul's very clear that our standing in God's grace, that he loves us, that he's kind, that's, that's all because of God. He elected us, he chose us before the world ever began, and then we came into existence, we were dead in our sins, then he made us alive, then he prepared these good works for us to walk in, he joined us together in the church. I mean, it's, it's all because of what he did. So we didn't get ourselves into the family, in other words. But now there's a responsibility. Now that we're in the family, we need to learn to live like family members. We need to, le- need to learn to kind of take on the family name, so to speak. We're, we're Christians by grace, and now we have to learn to appropriate that into our lives. And so it's a progressive thing. And so Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, he's reminding us of what this call to action involves. And he says it, it involves, he says, verse 22, putting off your old self. And now he's going to describe this old self. We have to put him off, so that means he's still influential, right? If, we, if we're commanded to put him off. Put off this old self, and notice how he describes it, which belongs to your former manner of life. This is not who you are anymore. This is the old you. Belongs to your former manner of life, back when you were dead. And this old self is corrupt, through deceitful desires. So this person that we're to put off, it's not who we are anymore, but he is he's still trying to exert influence, but he's corrupt through what the ESV translates as deceitful desires. And if you, are, if you write in your Bible, just write in the margin, the desires of deceit, or the desires produced by deceit. That would be a better way to translate that. The desires produced by deceit. Why am I drawing that out? Because what I want you to see is when it comes to our mind renewal and why it's so important is because we are still susceptible to the deceptions of the old self. We have to put that off. And these deceptions start, start with being deceived, start with making this wrong assessment about what's true, like Eve did in the garden, 
right? She made a wrong assessment. She began to interact with the snake, and the snake tempted her to doubt God's word, that God can't be trusted, that his words aren't true. So the deception began to take root, and then she, she assessed the tree through new eyes. The tree, the, the tree of death, the tree that was forbidden, that would, would incur certain death, she saw that it was good. Now there's a new assessment because she's deceived. And now that starts turning up all kinds of desires in her for this tree because she thinks it's good for her. And so now she's going to go for this tree and then it leads to the actual transgression where she takes the fruit and eats it. And so that's, that's just, that's this statement here kind of in, in reverse, right? So there's a deception, the old man is deceived, and that turns up these desires and that leads to our corruption, right? This old self is corrupt through the desires of deceit, or the desires that are produced by deception. And Paul commands us as Christians to put that off, which means we have to get at how we're thinking and how we're practicing, right? Those deceitful desires, and, that, and they're rooted most fundamentally in those deceptive thoughts. So, First and most found, the first and most foundational filter then for our thought life, if you flip back to Philippians, the reason why he starts there is because we, we have to know what is true. So ask yourself, the first filter for your thinking is the simple question, but life-transforming question, is this true? Is what I'm thinking right now, is it true? It's what I'm meditating on. It's what I'm letting my heart respond to. Is it in accordance with God's Word? Or is it a lie? Is the way I'm thinking about this circumstance, is it coming from faith in God's Word? Or am I relying on my own assessments? Am I operating on what is real and true according to God or on a hypothetical future situation? So we have to ask our question, is this true? Is what I'm thinking true? This is why if I've ever shepherded you through some particular sin struggle that you're involved in, if you've ever been in my office and we've been talking, I will always ask you at some point to write out what I call the real in your head. Because you're always thinking, and when you write it out, when you begin to kind of get it out in the open, what we're doing is we're smoking out the old man or the old woman and what he's saying and the deceptions that are bound up in that. I want you to see and hear those thoughts so that you can evaluate those thoughts with this criteria. Is it true? Is it true? We'll look at this a little more carefully in, in, in a moment. All right? The rest of these filters really flow out of the first one. Okay? This, is, this, is this true? But Paul adds some color here. He doesn't just stop with that one. He, he kind of fans this thing out with a lot of different language here that just, just adds some color and variety and beauty, really, to this, this whole theme. He's, he gives us some additional targets, or you could say, that direct our, to direct our thinking towards. So the first one is, is it true? And then the next is, is it honorable? Is it honorable? He's talking about 
thought patterns that are dignified, thought patterns that are, that are noble, ways of thinking that, that would be respectable, like these are, these are respectable ways of thinking, meaning, meaning Paul wants us to be thinking about things that are worthy of honor, you might say eternal things in the sense of not like in this platonic sense of this, you know, material versus immaterial. He's talking about eternal things. Things are going to last. Things that are weighty. Things that are glorious. Things that are going to endure. He's not saying that we can't have just sort of silly thoughts or trite thoughts, but, but if that's the pattern, okay, if you're only ever trafficking in this sort of immature thinking in childish thoughts, fixing your minds on the, you know, the constant YouTube reels or the trite Netflix dramas or whatever they are, and your thought life's never tracking in more noble things. It's never trafficking in, in who God is and His Word and His mission on earth and with things that actually matter, that make a difference. That's a problem. And that's not going to lead to peace. Paul's wanting us to see that we were saved for far more than those dishonorable, trite, Things and to set our minds on what is noble and honorable. All right. Next, he adds another target. I'm going to move quickly through these. He says, "Whatever is right," or in ESV, I think translates this as "just." Whatever is just. This is the the right word group or the righteous word group. He's he's talking about knowing what pleases the Lord. In other words, our minds should understand and dwell on His commands. That's what's right or righteous. We've been freed by the Lord to learn to obey Him. We actually have the capacity to do that now when we didn't before. And we're not earning our keep in the family, okay? We've been freed in the family to obey. His commands become sweet to us. We can actually please Him now that we're in Christ, now that we're in the family. He wants us to take on the family character. He wants us to act righteously. We're in accordance with what is right. And that starts with knowing his standards. You say, I think sometimes we shy away from learning and fixating ourselves on the commands of Christ because we're afraid of like some kind of legalism, right? Like, oh, I don't want to fall into being legalistic. But the commands are our joy. The same faith that believes the promises of Jesus is the same faith that heeds his commands and, and trembles at his warnings. We've got to know the standards. We have to think about how we might obey them practically. That's a, kind of an example of a weighty thing, right? Like a, a noble thing to be thinking about. Paul's also saying we should let our minds, we should not let our minds linger on what is not right, right? On sinful things, those things that transgress. The longer our minds linger, the more prone we will be to let that lie sink in and then give vent to it. So, what is right, that's another category. He also talks about what is pure. And that's closely related to the, to the category of what is righteous. What is pure. He's getting at those things that are wholesome and good. Those things that are unblemished. So this means then we have to get our minds, elevate our minds from the gutter, so to speak. 
And obviously that includes sexual sin. We must refuse to fix our minds on what is impure, including those pornographic thoughts and sexual fantasies. As alluring as those might seem, according to God, they are impure and they will bring devastation, not to mention a lack of peace. Bring guilt, turmoil, and disorder, not God's surpassing shalom. And next, he says we should think about whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. Which means those things that are, are good and that bring delight. Okay? Again, it just kind of keeps, keeps giving flavor to these things that we're to, to meditate on. And I love this nuance. Because God's truth, His commands, the things that are pure and right, these things are supremely lovely. These things are, are the highest forms of beauty. The most pleasing things that bring the greatest joy. Let's just, just hypothetically, just while we're on the, the purity example, let's just take that last example. Our deceived hearts would have us think the good and delightful and pleasing life is having unrestrained sex and giving into our every whim. Is that fair? But it's not. It's a terrible way to live. There's no peace in that. And it's definitely not lovely. It's perverted. But do you know what is lovely? A committed marriage. Where a husband is completely devoted to his wife and she to him. Trust is built. Companionship is deepened. Their consciences are clean and clear before the Lord. Intimacy is, a, is wonderful, full of joy. And my point is that this is a lovely, beautiful, and pleasing thing. Sexual sin is a fraud. God's commands bring life and joy. And so Paul says we should fix our minds on the things that are lovely. And so he says we should let our minds dwell on those things that are commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. We'll just cover all those at once here. There's things that are commendable. I mean, and that makes sense, right? Like, these are things you're going to exalt, commend, speak well of, that are excellent. That's like the highest, you know, in, in Greek philosophy, this was the highest virtue, okay? The excellence. Um, Paul doesn't often use this term, but he, he uses it here. He says it's this excellence, it's of highest virtue. The things that are most worthy of praise. That's what we should be thinking about. So do you know what God talks up? Do you know what He values? Do you know what He promotes? Do you know what He says is excellent? Of the highest value? Do you know what He praises? Do you value those things? Do you obsess over them? Is your thinking occupied by those things? Because that's the path to peace. Now, like I said, this is a, like a flurry of targets. You know, all said in rapid fire here. We shouldn't really get overly myopic because they all go together. They're not really talking about the same things. Okay? God, His Word, the things we find there, even creation even, that, that mimic those things and they're flowing out of His creative Word. 
We shouldn't kind of try, try to drill super, super deep into each of these. The point that Paul is making with this rapid-fire list is that our thinking must be filtered by God and His Word. We must renew our minds with all that is true and real, all that is noble and good, on those things that have real value and importance, on the best kinds of things. And we've got to beware of our own deceived thinking, our propensity toward the gutter, toward those trite things in life, toward the inconsequential. And we've got to actively work against those propensities as we meditate, we fix our minds on God and His truth. So, while we're here, let's just think practically for a minute on, you know, on what this looks like. It's always hard, because you can go so many ways on this uh, when it comes to meditating um, on what's true and good. But in my categories, in my, in, in, you know, in my mind, I think kind of in, there's sort of proactive ways to do this and then kind of reactive ways to do this. And they're both good. Okay, so reactive's not bad. Um, proactively, it's the things we often think about, right? So like your quiet time in the morning, you know, reading the Bible, having a Bible reading plan, getting, on, getting into Scripture, meditating on it daily, memorizing the Bible, um, those things are, are just, you know, low-hanging fruit, okay? Things we all know about. Also, you come to church, you hear sermons that are taught to you. These sermons are a means of grace in your life that God has designed as a, as a means of getting your mind out of that other stuff and onto what is, is good and noble. So thinking through the sermons you're, that you're taught, spending some time in your quiet times, kind of thinking back over those, those are, that's a good, good way to do this. Obviously, interpersonally, Okay? Sharing what you're learning with your friends as you're growing together. Uh, we're supposed to speak the truth with each other in love, Paul says in Ephesians 4. So sharing what you're learning with your friends is another way. You know, Reading good books by trusted authors. They're going to help you think God's thoughts after him. Those are obviously kind of the more proactive ways to, to go at this. But what I want to camp on, and I think is probably less familiar to most people, is sort of this reactive way that we need to meditate on what is true and good or renew our minds. And I think when I talk about reactive, I'm talking about any time we're going about our day and we notice the bad fruit, right? We notice the, the anxious thoughts or the, or the anxious feelings and, or being upset or frustrated or we've snapped, you know, we've kind of come unhinged, we've gotten overwhelmed. Those moments are, are like the check engine light, okay? And if you don't know what that means, it means you need to go to the mechanic. <laughs> the light's not the problem. Um, I mean, in our, it doesn't, the analogy breaks down because your anxiety is a problem, you know? But the light's not the, the problem in the illustration. It's the engine is the problem. The light tells me that the engine is something's wrong there. And so the, the anxious... Feelings, the being upset, snapping, they, these things reveal that I, I need to filter my thinking. I need to scrub my thoughts. So, just to put some shoe leather on this, let, let's say I come home from church, like on a work day. Me, talking about me, okay? I work at the church. <laughs> I come home from church, and I don't feel like talking to my wife. I know you're like, <gasps> she asked me about my day. 
and I get a little short with her. Or I seem a little irritated. So she wasn't born yesterday. She asked me if I'm okay. I say that I am. And again, I'm kind of seem to her as I'm slightly frustrated. I just blame it on the, I'm tired. You know, I've had a long day. Something's wrong, okay? Something is wrong. I'm not living out of God's peace in that moment. As simple as it sounds. I'm obviously not rejoicing like we talked about last week. So what do I do in the fog? Well, I need to ask myself and really consider what I'm thinking about. Right? That would be what we would do, okay? According to this text. What am I thinking about? What am I meditating on? What is the real going in my head right now? What was going on before when I was commuting home? What was happening when I was in the office? I need to think about this. I need to take a minute and really get it out in the open somehow, either just in my own thoughts or articulate that to my wife or sit down and write it out from having a really hard time. What, what could be going on here? Well, I may have left the office a little bit behind from where I needed to be. I might be anxious that because I'm behind, I'm not going to get everything done. I'm going to be rushed. Or I might feel guilty that I wasted pockets of time during the day. Because I'm actually, not only am I behind, but I'm partly responsible for being behind. Or I might be frustrated that I was interrupted so much. Or there may have been a a complex counseling issue that I felt like I did not handle in the best way. And so I'm churning that over and over in my mind as I'm driving home. Ways I could have done that differently. Or something may have not gone my way in an elders meeting. Maybe I proposed something that got shot down. Or maybe I had so much administration work to do that I didn't get to study as much as I'd wanted to. But what is it that my mind is fixed on? That's the question. What am I replaying? What am I rehashing? What am I fretting about as I walk in the door? What's playing under the surface? I might not even realize it when I open the door and I come in and I, I kind of am a little bit aloof with Mary. But it gets revealed when I get a little snappy. When I clam up, I say, I don't want to talk about the day. I start talking about how tired I am and I don't have energy to... It's like, hang on. So for the sake of illustration, let's just pick one of those, like, I don't know, eight different problems I could, it could have been. Um... And again, this is just, I'm talking, about, I'm talking in hypotheticals here, okay? I'm being pretty, pretty transparent. All right. Let's just say I decide to open up and I kind of get it out in the open, you know, with Mary. And I say, I'm just frustrated that something did not go my way in the elders' meeting today. And, you know, I kind of said what I thought, but I think it's going in another direction. And the men decided to go a different direction. And I'm, 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 I guess I'm just worried that it's not going to turn out as best, as good as it could for our church. So, okay, like, if that's it, like, there's the thought, right? It's there. It's out in the open. That's what I'm dwelling on. That's what I'm meditating on. 
And let's just take that first category. Is what I'm feeling based on truth? Is it in accordance with God's word, or am I deceived in some way? All right, let's just, let's just pick it apart. I'm frustrated that something did not go my way in the meeting. What does that imply? Well, it implies that I think that I know what's best in the situation. I mean, it implies a lot of things, but at least that, right? It implies I, know what's, I, think, I think I know what's best. Is that true? First question. I mean, it could be. But now I'm not so sure, right? As I'm going to kind of think about that, like, uh, could others in the meeting have more insight and wisdom than me? Oh, yeah. And what's more, does God have more wisdom and insight than me? Oh, yeah. Is he sovereign over everything that happens? Yes. Did God let that decision go a different way than I wanted? Yes. So now we're getting into reality here. What's true, what's real versus what I perceive. What's real about the situation is that God chose a different outcome for that meeting, and He's infinitely wise, and He knows what is best. Does God love His church more than me? Yes. Is God working in my own life through this? You bet. Is He teaching me to humble myself in this moment, revealing pride that I think I know what's best? Yes. Is that good for me? Yes. But now I have a choice. Will I align my thinking with what is true? Or will I persist in my thoughts that are not in line with His Word? I am deceived at some level. And my frustrated feelings are giving me away. Make sense? But you might be thinking, which cheese clay? Like, what am I supposed to do with those feelings? Okay, so maybe I've bagged and tagged myself. Um, but now I'm, I'm working. I'm working. I'm working hard to renew my mind. But I still feel irritated. You know, after I've renewed my mind. What if you don't automatically have peace once you've renewed your mind? Well, that leads to our second pursuit. Transforming our thinking, as important as it is, is not enough. We've got to take the next step and act on what is true, no matter how we feel. Or as Paul says here, it involves implementing what we have seen and heard. Implementing what we've seen and heard. So he says in verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So in addition to bringing our minds in line with the truth, Paul intimates here that we've also got to bring our lives 
in line with the truth as well. In other words, we can't be a hearer only and not a doer. Use James. Renewed thinking must also lead to renewed practice. And now, just at the outset, I want you to notice, again, I keep, I keep hammering this because we're a feelings-oriented society. Okay? But I want you to notice what is conspicuously absent from this instruction. Paul does not tell us to fixate on our emotions anywhere in here. Right? He doesn't tell us to think about how we feel. The next step, according to Paul, is action. It's practice. Practicing the truth. It's acting in a way that is in line with a renewed mind. Paul does not say we need to wait around until we feel like we're not anxious anymore. Wait around until the feelings of irritability go away. No, he says we must practice what we have been taught. We have to step out in obedience even if we are terrified. And that is what he means when he talks about practicing. He's talking about choosing to act by faith in ways that are good and fruitful. Now, there is a subtle trap in thinking, if I just renew my mind enough, okay? You've been around here. Dial in. There's a subtle trap in thinking, if I just renew my mind enough, obedience will be easy. Or it will be automatic. Or it'll be natural. If I can just discern the exact lie, you know, if I can just administer the right truth, you know, in this moment, I'll always be motivated to obey. It won't be as hard. And sometimes that's gloriously true. Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you see that. Like, it becomes obvious. It's like, whoa, I'm in a a snare. This is a lie. I didn't realize that before. Now I see it. And it's just like, boom, there's repentance. And you're headed in a new direction. Praise God. We lay hold of the truth. It's extremely motivating, and our emotions fall right into line. But sometimes, and oftentimes, actually, they don't. Especially in our besetting areas. Our passions or our fears or our frustrations are still strong even after we have renewed our minds. And that requires action. Okay, So just thought, thought experiment here. Illustration. Imagine you've been walking in a path in the woods as long as you can remember. You know, you've been on the path. It's well-worn. You know it forwards and backwards. And then somebody one day comes along and they hand you a map and they're like, you're actually on the wrong path. Um, this is a very dangerous path. Uh, there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of toxins in these plants and they're going to actually, actually kill you. You know, whatever. I don't know. Okay, just hang with me. Then... They tell you, okay, you have to get off this path, and there's a new path right over there. Okay? They point out the new path to you. You can see it, and they even kind of whip out a map, and they hand it to you, and they're like, here's the map, and here's the path, here's, the path. here's where it's going to go. It's like good plants around here. They're not toxic. They're going to be good for you. You're going to be stronger as a result. And you're thinking, wow. You, and, then, and then, you know, you are convinced that you have to get off this path. You're convinced of the new path. You see it clearly. You're thoroughly convinced. You're thoroughly motivated. But seeing the map and then even looking at the path isn't enough. As crucial as that is, you've got to know you're on the wrong path. You've got to know there's a right path and it's right over there. But what do you have to do? You actually have to get on that other path and walk it. 
And let's keep the illustration going. Since you've never walked the path before, the path is overgrown. It is foreign to you. You don't know its twists and turns like you know the twists and turns of the old path. There's a lot of briars and brush and all kinds of things you've got to get through to walk down that path. What's my point? Even though you're convinced of the new path, it's going to take work, pain, energy to learn to walk on it. The old, well-worn path will feel easier and more natural, especially at the beginning. And if we're thinking it's going to be easier, it should be easy if I renew my mind. Then you won't ever get on the path. It's actually your practice of walking the path. It's your practice of using the machete that will make it easier and more natural over time. That's the only way that we're going to get familiarity with the new path is by actually practicing. The, the, the way is obedience. And it's not automatic just because our minds are renewed, because we see the new path. We have to put the work in. We have to chop away at the underbrush. We've got to get familiar with and actually walk the path ourselves. We have to take our thoughts captive, like we're talking about right now, be aware of like what's going on. And all of those things takes work. So Paul calls this Philippian church to action. And what's interesting here is, is how he does it. Okay? He calls the church to action, but he, but he doesn't just say, hey, think these things and then put them into practice. He goes a little bit further. He personalizes it. Did you catch that? He calls them to renew their minds generally, you know, in verse, in verse 8, but then he gets personal in verse 9, and he says, put into practice what you've received from me. Right? What you've learned from my teaching what you've received from the traditions that I've passed down to you, what you've heard me say, what you saw in my life when I was with you, put all that into practice. So why does he say it like that? What's he driving at? I think he wants this church to feel the accountability. What do I mean? All of Paul's labor, all of his example, all of his teaching will be in vain if they do not implement it. If they don't appropriate it into their own lives and learn to live like he lived, it's all in vain. It doesn't matter how much they know. It doesn't matter how many lies they can articulate. It doesn't matter how... If they don't act on it, if their lives are not transformed, they will be the weak link in the chain. He's reminding them of his investment, and he's calling them to imitate it. As he's in prison, might die, he's passing off the scene, right? So that they will feel the weight. And the same is true for us. It's not enough that Pastor Brian or Pastor Rich, Ms. Christie, or even your boundless leaders here are implementing these things. You cannot live off of their implementation. It falls to you, it falls to every single one of you to join the mission to live a progressively transformed life. You are a link in the chain from Christ 
to the apostles, to the first century church, all the way to the 21st century church. And you are the future of the church. You are the church now, but you're the future of the leadership of the church. In just a few short years, children will look to you. Your future fathers, future mothers, your future elders, future deacons, future disciplers. And it comes down to not if you came to church and listened to sermons and bounds, or even read your Bible every day. But did you actually put into practice what you were taught? Is it making a real difference in your life, not all at once, but over time? That's the question. Now, lest you're all like way convicted right now, I want you to be encouraged because for this group, I see you appropriating these things in your life. Okay, I know you feel immature. I know you feel like, man, I'm just kind of eking by and just scraping and look at Rich. And man, like, you know, I, I told Mary last week, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen Christy sin. <laughs> I mean, theologically, I know that's not true. <laughs> but I, I, I tried. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. <laughs> so my point is that like you see these giants and you're thinking, I'm just a worm, you know? But what matters is the humility and the, the, the desire to understand these things and begin to put that work in, making those steps of implementation, and we see you guys doing that. And that is a great, great joy. So I just... I know you're probably convicted, but I want you to, to feel that weight because I think Paul wants us to feel it. But I want you to know that we see you doing this very thing. And if we kind of round this out, if we come back to the, my, my previous example, right, of my own life, what would it look like to not just sort of triage the issues, you know, and like discern, okay, what am I thinking? What are, what are the lies? What, what, what should I be thinking instead? What would it look like to now practice these things, to yield my will to Christ, even when I don't feel it. Well, then it would look like mapping out ways I'm going to obey, even if I feel irritated or, or, or frustrated that something didn't go my way, or I'm anxious maybe that, that it's going to go a different way. So what would that look like? Okay, It would look like me actively doing what we talked about last week, rejoicing in the Lord in prayers of thankfulness for His ultimate good control over His church. And the elders in the situation. I'm just, again, I'm just talking hypothetically. It would look like me extolling God's wisdom in how he's assembled the elders together with various gifts and thanking God for the superior wisdom of others to guide the church better than I could have done. It would look like speaking freely to others and especially to my wife of how the Lord is cultivating humility in my heart when things don't go my way, and rejoicing in that, choosing to rejoice in that moment. It would look like continuing to participate and invest deeply in meetings, those same elder meetings in the future, because I'm going to be tempted to pull back and sulk because my idea didn't, I didn't get to do what I wanted, you know, like a little kid. And so what do, what do we do in those scenarios? Grown men will pull back and stop talking in meetings. That's the temptation. So obedience would be continuing to joyfully, faithfully, with zeal, continue to participate and invest deeply in the meetings, 
Continue to present ideas, even if, they, even if they happen to get shot down every now and again. And do not sulk because something didn't go my way in the past. It would look like affirming the elders and the other members in the meeting and highlighting their strengths, minimizing their weaknesses, fixating on, you know, not fixating on their limitations, but fixating on God's grace. It would look like refusing to size myself up with anyone in that meeting and try to exalt myself in my own mind. You know, I could have done that better. I could have... That's got to go. So that would be choosing to obey regardless of how I feel. And moment by moment, situation by situation, day after day, as you begin to dial in on some of these besetting areas, areas of fear, areas of frustration, you begin to take those thoughts captive, meditate on what's true and good. You think about what obedience is going to look like in those moments, and then you begin to implement that. It might be a slow trickle at first, just a drip. But then pretty soon that drip's going to turn into a little stream. That stream's going to turn into a river and then into a waterfall of obedience and glory to Christ because you're taking those small steps day by day, renewing your mind. You fail, so what? This is progressive, right? You get back up tomorrow because there's grace. There's grace behind and grace before us. You know, like it's, we're surrounded by Christ. He's with us. This is progressive. And what will happen as we put this into practice, Paul tells us. The God of peace will be with you. He will be with you. We will experience God's presence. The result is experiencing the God of peace. He's saying we're going to experience greater communion with this God of peace. And the point is that we're going to experience more of his peace. It's another way of saying it, kind of a literary way of what he said earlier in a few verses at the end of last week. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Now he's saying the God of peace will be with you. So how does this lead to peace? How does this, this, this grind work of, of meditating on the truth and renewing your mind and, and, and implementing you know, obedience in the moment by moment, how does this lead to peace? Well, as, as we learn to obey, guess what happens? Our consciences are more free. They're more free. There's... there's there's an open line of communication between the Lord and me. Not meaning I'm getting in the family, but his ears are open to my prayers because it's, if I'm being rude with my wife and short with her, First Peter says he doesn't hear my prayers. So as I'm learning to obey and I'm, I'm yielding to the Lord in these ways, my conscience is more free. It's less inflamed. I have greater communion with the Lord. And then as, we, as I fail, I'm more confident in his mercy. I know the path back, confession, repentance. We get to, those, we get to that more quickly because we, we've begun to discern those lies. And we, we, you know, we're not going to go back to those anymore. There's more stability in your life because you're not slaves to your emotions anymore. And all that cascades, I mean, we can keep going, but all that cascades into greater experiences of God and his peace. It doesn't come all at once. It might feel like it ebbs and flows at times, but there's, there's a, it's going somewhere, like that river that we talked about. There's, we experience the God of peace. So as we wrap up tonight, just 
as you're thinking through these things, just if there's something that stuck out or there's a situation, what I would encourage you is if there's a situation that's consecutively causing, causing, you know, in quote, air quotes, uh, it's, it's the catalyst for anxious thoughts or angry thoughts or, or frustrated feelings, dial in on that. Um, if, if you don't know how to do what I just described and it feels very overwhelming to you, pull one of the leaders aside. They Trust me, they've heard this ad nauseum. So um, they would love to be able to help you with this. I would love to be able to help you with this. So we want you to experience God's peace because so many things happen out of that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, what a glorious passage. Um, what a helpful way of, of wrapping that up for us tonight, and I pray that you would give us insight into these things, that we would learn to take our thoughts captive as situations arise, and that you would help us map out what obedience looks like in those moments, and I pray, Lord, that, that these students wouldn't get overwhelmed, um, that they would just continue following you day by day, moment by moment, and uh, trusting you for today. If they, if they fail, they've had a panic attack, they, they get angry, they blow up at somebody, I pray, Lord, that you would teach them how to get back on the path, that, that it's, no matter how far off they are, repentance is one step back. You're present, you're ready to help us. And so, Lord, just encourage the saints tonight and produce the fruit that you intend to see. Fill us with your righteousness, in Jesus' name.